glorious time of worship. Thank you, choir, orchestra, and team. Well, this week we are continuing our study of the book of James, and we're picking up exactly where we left off last time, which is in the introduction to the book in James chapter 1, verse 1. In the first verse of the book, we are introduced to the author and to his original audience. And one of the things that's pretty common, especially in our era, is that people tend to read and interpret the scriptures in light of their own experience. Whereas we should be looking for the author's intent, and so we need to be looking at the original context of the author and his audience and interpreting from their context to ours, not from our context back to theirs. So James chapter 1 verse 1 introduces us to the author and his audience. We read James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Now last week we looked at the life of the author. We really were looking at the testimony of James the half-brother of Jesus. And we talked about the fact that he grew up as an unbeliever, despite growing up with Joseph and Mary as his parents and the Son of God as his older brother, he remained an unbeliever for probably the first 30 years of his life and did not come to saving faith until after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when the Lord graciously appeared to him and his heart and life was changed. We ended last time with the moment that changed James' life forever, that moment in which he saw the risen Lord. It's recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. And the fact that James saw Christ after his resurrection gives us another key aspect of who he is because James was an apostle. Now, he was not one of the original 12, but rather he was one of the broader group of apostles referred to in 1 Corinthians 15 and many other passages in the New Testament. As you've gone through the New Testament, you've probably recognized that there are people other than the 12 who are referred to as apostles in the New Testament, and James is one of those. In the New Testament, you have the 12 original apostles, with Judas being replaced, if you remember, in the early chapters of Acts. But then you have a broader group of apostles. Maybe we could distinguish between the 12 as capital A apostles and then this broader group of small A apostles. But all of them were people who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And James was an eyewitness of the resurrection, therefore an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 We read, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. 
And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So here, clearly, you have a, it, the Lord appears to the 12, and then it says, then he appeared to all the apostles. So he appears to the 12, he appears to the 500, he appears to James, and then to all the apostles. So there were at least 500 of these eyewitnesses of the resurrection and one of them was James. The fact that James was considered an apostle is made clear in Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, where Paul writing says, three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul is saying, when I went to Jerusalem, I only saw two of the apostles, Peter and James, the Lord's brother. So James was clearly an apostle, an eyewitness of the resurrection. And after James was saved, he immediately began applying all that he had heard and seen in the life of Christ. He had all of those 30 years of observing the Lord Jesus the way only a younger brother can. And once he was converted, once he saw Christ after the resurrection and his heart was transformed, he began applying all that he knew from the life of Christ. And he lived such a godly life that he was given a nickname, a nickname that both believers and unbelievers alike called him. They called him James the Just or James the Righteous. <clears throat> Hegesippus, a very, a very early Christian writer, who is cited by Eusebius in his Ecclesiastical History, writes the following about James. So this is an early testimony about the life of James after his conversion. Quote, he would go alone into the temple where he used to be found on his knees asking forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like a camel's because he was ever upon them worshiping God and asking forgiveness for the people. James was a man of prayer, someone who spent time on his knees worshiping the Lord and interceding for the people, asking for forgiveness for the people of Israel. He was a godly man called James the righteous by those who knew him. Now, after the original 12 apostles left on their missionary journeys, <clears throat> James became the key leader of the mother church in Jerusalem. And his leadership was repeatedly recognized by Peter and Paul and the other apostles because that Jerusalem church was the church that sent them out as missionaries. Remember, later on, Paul will be sent out by the church in Antioch, but the original 12 on their missionary journeys were sent out by the church in Jerusalem and James became the pastor of that church. So he was the pastor of the sending church of the apostles. And his leadership was repeatedly recognized by the apostles. We see this clearly in Acts chapter 15 where it is James who proposes the solution to this really significant dilemma and conflict between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians. He presided over that council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, a vital decision point in the early church. 
And we see clearly that Peter, Paul, and the other apostles all agreed to abide by James's decision. In fact, there are at least three occasions where we find Paul or Peter deferring to James, deferring to him. So interestingly, it was not Peter or Paul who had the greatest authority in the church during the apostolic period. It was James. And this, of course, has implications for modern times. We talked last week about the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Church's belief in the perpetual virginity of Mary. There's another aspect of their belief that is not supported by Scripture, and that is the idea of apostolic succession. They believe that Peter was a pope, he was the first pope, and that the current pope or patriarch in the case of the Eastern Orthodox Church are, are spiritual, spiritual heirs of Peter, the first pope. But what's interesting is when you look at the New Testament, Peter was not the leader. James was. If anyone had top authority, it was James, not Peter or Paul. But even James was not a pope, and he did not have unilateral authority. In Acts chapter 15, where James's leadership is most prominently featured, we are still reminded in Acts chapter 15, verse 6, that the early church was led by a plurality of elders, and that it was only when the elders and the apostles collectively made a decision that it was considered authoritative by the rest of the churches. So... James shared authority with the elders and the apostles. He was, as it were, the first among equals when it came to decision-making. But he was definitely respected and had incredible influence of any of the New Testament persons. He was the leader and the one considered the leader both by Christians and non-Christians alike. We see this demonstrated actually in another book of the New Testament, the book of Jude. The book of Jude is the only other New Testament book written by one of Jesus's brothers. Now, the name Jude, like James, was a common name. There were multiple people named Jude or Judas, and so Jude needs to identify himself so they know who is writing the book of Jude. And he introduces himself in Jude 1 as Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. So both of the Lord's brothers, James and Jude, introduce themselves the same way. We are a bond servant of the Lord Jesus. But then notice what Jude says. He says, Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. See, James was the most well-known leader in the early apostolic church. And so the way Jude can, can tell people that he's Jude, the brother of the Lord, is by mentioning his more well-known brother, James. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. The fact that the best way for Jude to identify himself was to mention that he was James's brother tells us how well-known and influential and important James's leadership role was in the early New Testament church. By the way, I want to pause as we kind of mention James and Jude. Here you have two New Testament books written by the two half-brothers of the Lord. One of them, the book of James, focuses on right living, and the other by Jude focuses on right doctrine. And those two things always must remain together. Right doctrine is what we call orthodoxy or right belief. Right living is what we call orthopraxy or right practice. 
and right doctrine and right practice must always be held together. And we see that balance in the fact that the two brothers of the Lord who write New Testament books, one focuses on orthopraxy, one on orthodoxy, one on right living and one on right doctrine. And so we must always keep those two things before us and in balance with one another. But again, Jude's mention that he's the brother of James indicates the incredible role that James played in the early apostolic church. And as I mentioned, it wasn't just believers who recognized James' leadership. Unbelievers recognized it too. And that brings us to how James died. The Sanhedrin was watching as more and more people in Jerusalem came to faith in Christ. And they saw James' key leadership role. And so Eusebius, the early church historian, records that the Sanhedrin developed a plot. They took James by force and put him on the pinnacle of the temple and demanded that he deny the faith to the crowds that were assembled there. They ordered him to tell the people assembled for the Passover that Jesus was not the Messiah, that he had been led astray and that others had been led astray and that they shouldn't be led astray in this belief that Jesus is the Messiah. So he's basically taken up to this high point and ordered to deny the faith. He's standing there, and instead of denying the faith, he gives testimony to the Lordship of Christ, saying, why do you inquire of me concerning Jesus, the Son of Man? He is both seated in heaven on the right hand of power and will come again on the clouds of heaven. Eusebius records that the Sanhedrin was enraged and had him thrown off the pinnacle of the temple and he fell, was seriously wounded but still alive and so then they stoned and then clubbed him to death. Now the non-Christian historian Josephus concurs that James was executed on orders and by a plot of the Sanhedrin but he doesn't give any detail mentioning only that he was stoned to death. So while we can't be sure of all of the details of the martyrdom of James, the early sources all agree that James gave his life for the cause of Christ. He was one of the earliest Christian martyrs. So what we have before us in the book of James is a priceless treasure. It's the word of God written by divine inspiration. It's a book written by someone who lived in the same household as Jesus Christ as he grew up and knew the Lord in a way only a younger brother can. It's a book written by someone who had lived in hardened and hard-hearted unbelief for 30 years, but then saw the resurrected Christ, was gloriously saved, and his life was transformed. It's a book written by someone who then devoted the rest of his life to serving the Lord Jesus, calling himself a bondservant of God and a, of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is also the teaching of the most influential and well-known Christian leader in the early apostolic period. And it is the wisdom of someone whom both believers and unbelievers admired for his godly and just life and his life of prayer. And it is a treasure left to all generations of Christians by one of the earliest Christian martyrs and the man who wrote the first book written in the New Testament. 
This is divine revelation that God gave us through the pen of a man who despite his influence and authority and his status as being the half-brother of the Lord introduces himself simply and humbly as James, a bond servant. Just a servant of the Lord. So even in the first words, how he introduces himself, he's already teaching us humility. He doesn't introduce himself as James, the most important leader, James, the apostle, James, the just, no, just James, a bond servant of the Lord Jesus. Well, having now met our author, I want to now introduce you to the audience of the book. We want to study the scripture in its original context, and so we want to look at both the author who wrote it and who he was writing to. He says in verse 1 that he's writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And that phrase, the 12 tribes, makes it clear that James is primarily writing to his fellow Israelites. This is a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he mentions that these, he's writing particularly to those who are scattered or dispersed abroad, to the dispersion. These are Israelites who were living now in other nations outside of the promised land. So this is a letter written by James from Jerusalem to Jewish people living outside of the promised land. Now the question arises, were the people James writing to Christians or not? Were they believers in Jesus or not? Well, there are several verses in the book that indicate that James had believers in mind, that he knew that many of those who would read his book were believers. In verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren. He calls them brethren. When, and he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So clearly he's writing to those who had faith. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So clearly at least a a portion of his audience were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, verse 70, he says, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. So he's writing to people who believed in the return of Christ. But there are also verses which indicate that James had unbelievers in mind as he was writing his book. I think he knew that amongst any group, any religious community, there are those who are pretenders, those who have a fake faith and not a real faith. And we see him address those people multiple times in his book. In chapter 1, verse 26, he says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Chapter 2, verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In chapter 2, verse 26, he says, Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Chapter 4, verse 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
And then chapter 4, verse 8, listen to these strong words to those with a fake faith. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. By the way, this verses we'll see a little later on, is addressed to some rich people who were oppressing the Christian refugees from Jerusalem. And he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Clearly, Intended for unbelievers. So James is writing primarily to Jewish Christians, but he is concerned that some of them have a fake faith, not a saving faith. In other words, he's concerned that some of them may be now the way he was back then, religious but unsaved, related to Jesus but not redeemed. Somehow, one way or another, by family ties or other ways, somehow associated with Christians, but not attached to Christ. Apart, perhaps, of a Christian family, but having no faith in Christ. Just part of a Christian family, but with no faith in Christ himself. So one of the main purposes of the book of James is to exhort people to do what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, when he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. And I want to pause right now and just ask you to do that. Do you have a real faith or a fake faith? A living faith or a dead faith? Are you associated with Christ by family ties, by birth or by marriage? Or are you attached to Christ by a genuine faith of the heart? Do you belong to Christianity or do you belong to Christ? Have you entered into a religious tradition by birth or have you entered into a living personal relationship with Christ by the new birth? You can enter into a tradition by natural birth, but you can only enter into a relationship with Christ by the new birth. Do you, my friend, have a dead faith or a saving faith? Are you a fake professor or a genuine possessor of the gospel? Well, so far in our study of the original audience of the book of James, we've concluded that James is writing from Jerusalem to Israelite Christians who are living outside the promised land. And he's concerned that some of them have a false profession of faith, not a true possession of faith. So he writes what we call a general letter. And this is unlike the letters of Paul. Paul's letters primarily are addressed to specific situations in specific places. But this one is a general letter designed to be read by people who are living all over the world in different cities and countries. At this point, I want to inquire and look a little more deeply about who these Israelite Christians who were scattered among the nations were. And what, where did they come from? What was their situation? How did they get there dispersed and scattered amongst all these different nations? Well, the New Testament evidence tells us that they consisted of four primary groups. 
First were Israelites who had been living abroad for generations. If you remember back in Old Testament history, there was two exiles and invasions, and so people were dispersed. The 12 tribes were scattered amongst the different nations. And some of those Israelites who had been living in foreign lands for generations had become Christians because of the early missionary efforts of the church. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. And as the early Christians went out, they preached the gospel, and many of these Israelite people living in other countries became saved. Secondly, there were Israelites who had been living in other countries who came on their pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem and they heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost. And Acts chapter 2 records that many of them were saved and it lists the names of various countries and places where they were from. So some of these Israelite Christians who were living in other countries were those who had been converted on the day of Pentecost and then had gone back to their homes. But the third group is really the most important one and the one I think James has primarily in mind and that is Christian refugees from the church in Jerusalem. These were people who were forced to flee from Jerusalem by the persecution that began with the stoning of Stephen, was continued by Saul as he went house to house and then later on even after Saul's conversion was continued by other agents of the Sanhedrin. We read about these persecutions, these early persecutions in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we, we read that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. So imagine, here's the church in Jerusalem. We know that it's large because there were 3,000 added to their number on the day of Pentecost. There was certainly at least already 500 because we see the resurrection appearances of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15 as having at least 500 people. So here you have a church of at least 3,500 and probably many, many more, and they're now under persecution. And Saul is going house to house. Imagine if that was happening here in Kalamazoo in our local church. This Persecutor Saul is going to one family's home and throwing them in prison. Then he's going on to the next home and throwing them in prison, going house to house to house. Certainly the church is getting word of this as people are disappearing. And so family after family is forced to flee. Acts 8, 1, 4 says, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So they're forced to flee, but they take the gospel with them. Then in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, it says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. So they're scattered and they go first kind of locally, but then they have to run even farther and they make their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch and from there on to other locations as well. So that third group is Christian refugees from the church in Jerusalem. The fourth category of people are 
Israelite and Gentile converts who had been led to the Lord by the refugees from Jerusalem. Remember in Acts 8, 4, it says those who had been scattered went about preaching the word wherever they went. And in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26, we see in verse 19 that they were preaching the word first to Jews. But then in verse 20, it says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So the other Christians now who are dispersed abroad are those who had been led to Christ by the refugees. The persecution comes on the church in Jerusalem. They flee to other places and they preach the word as they go and they lead people to Christ in those communities. And so now there are these Christian believers and communities scattered abroad. These are the people to whom James is writing. I want to ask you to think a little bit more about those last two groups, the Christian refugees from Jerusalem and then the people that they led to the Lord. This is really something marvelous. The hard hand of persecution comes down on the church and scatters them. But that hard hand was simply pounding seed. And as the seed was pounded, it scattered and bore fruit to the four winds of the earth. When those early believers fled from Saul and then later from the Sanhedrin, they did not go quietly into hiding. Rather, they preached wherever they went. They were following the instructions the Lord had given to the apostles in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, when he said, whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Their strategy was to preach, then to flee, then to preach again somewhere else, then to flee, and then preach again. We see this pattern especially outlined in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, all based upon what the Lord had instructed. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Preach the word, then when they persecute you, go to the next city and do the same. This is what we could call the hit-and-run tactics of the early church. The kingdom of light is invading the kingdom of darkness. But the kingdom of darkness has all the political and human power, as it were. So the early Christians used hit and run tactics, guerrilla warfare, what we could call an insurgency of love and light and truth. And this strategy confounded and eventually conquered Satan's strongholds. The early church was something that Neither the Sanhedrin nor the Roman Empire could stop because as soon as they would identify a group of Christians and persecute them, they would scatter and just take it to five more cities. The early Christians were people who constantly faced danger and death for preaching the gospel of Christ. And yet, even as they ran for their lives, they kept right on preaching. You know, it's one thing to be brave once. It's another thing to be brave continually. It's one thing to preach the gospel and to be persecuted and to escape. It's another thing to preach the gospel, be persecuted, escape, and then go to the next city and do the exact same thing, knowing the exact same result will come. Christians in future generations have a lot to learn from them. In the events of Acts 8 through 11, we see once again that what men intended for evil, God uses for good. The earlier church would say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That God used persecution to spread the gospel throughout the known world. 
you know, no missionary is more motivated than the one being chased. He's got to get where he's going because if he doesn't get there, he'll be killed. Persecution against the church in Jerusalem just caused the gospel to spread farther and faster. This is why James could write what he does in verse 2 when he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is teaching these early Christian refugees to embrace what God was doing even through the persecutions. God was at work. A lot of the people who first received and read the book of James were Christians from Jerusalem, now living as refugees in foreign lands. And I can't help but think what a connection James must have had with them. Keep in mind, he was their pastor. These are people who fled from the church in Jerusalem of which he was the pastor. They knew him and he knew them. And as, especially in those early days when Saul was going house to house, pulling away family after family after family, and then the other families start to flee, imagine the tearful goodbyes that were happening in Jerusalem in this loving local church, the mother church, And think of how often James probably was there as people were hurriedly packing their, what they could carry in the middle of the night and fleeing away, saying a tearful goodbye to those being left behind, probably never to see one another again on this side of heaven. He's writing to them because his flock had been scattered abroad and he still wants to minister to them. We need to remember that many of the people who originally read this letter had incredibly difficult lives. They had to flee from Jerusalem. Where did they go? Well, some maybe had a relative they could go to. Some maybe found their way to the homes of Christians. Maybe those who had been converted on the day of Pentecost took some of them into their homes. But many of them were forced by necessity to hire themselves out to rich landowners and work as slaves. James is going to rebuke the rich oppressors who had taken advantage of these Christian refugees. In chapter 5, which I read a little earlier, he does that when he says, listen here, you rich. He talks about how the rich had blasphemed the name of Christ and then dragged these refugees into court and had oppressed them and failed to pay them and done all sorts of things. These were people who fled from Jerusalem because of their faith in Christ and ran right into other hardships where they had run to. Slavery and oppression and and being tricked and deceived and used. These were people who suffered greatly. As I thought about these Christian refugees, my mind was drawn back to a refugee family that we got to know quite well from Ukraine. Life of refugees is very, very difficult. 2015, during the first Russian invasion of Ukraine, I call it the first one because it looks very imminently like there might be a second one. When the Russians invaded in 2014 and 2015, 
two million Ukrainians were displaced by the fighting as heavy artillery was used on cities and towns, and I've been in dozens of those towns where just block after block is just obliterated, civilian apartment buildings and homes just wiped out by this mass use of artillery and rockets. And two million Ukrainians were displaced by the fighting, had to flee for their lives. Nine of them were relatives of a very close friend and ministry partner of mine who was trying to plant a church in Odessa and really having a hard time getting the church going. This, these relatives of his had to flee when the shelling came near to their farm. And at first, the father made the very difficult decision to send his wife and children to safety while he remained behind, behind to try to save their crops and to keep their livestock alive. But then eventually he had to join them as well because a, uh, an artillery shell landed in his front yard and blew shrapnel all through his house. And he was saved just because he happened to be standing in front of the refrigerator and the refrigerator stopped the shrapnel from killing him. But here is a family of nine, husband, wife, seven children, who had to flee with only what they could carry. And when they got out of the war zone, first the wife alone with the children came. As again, as I said, the husband stayed behind. And they contacted my friend and asked if he could take them in, but he already had people literally sleeping on every inch of his floor. And there literally was not physical space for another mattress on the ground. And so he asked if we would take them in. I went down to the train station and met them. So here they are, they're arriving in a, in a new city. A foreigner is gonna meet them at the train station. They don't even know what I look like. And their future is uncertain. Remember them getting off the train and there they were, the mom and then all of these different ages of kids all the way down to a three-year-old and even the three-year-old was carrying as much as she could. And I, met, I remember looking in the rearview mirror as we were driving back to our apartment. Here they are with a complete stranger, not knowing what awaits them. Father joined a little while later, and for the next six months, the 15 of us, their nine and our six, shared three bedrooms, two bathrooms, and 900 square feet of space. So we got to see their lives quite well. I was astounded by their faith in Christ by their hope. They had more joy living as refugees, crammed nine people into a bedroom and a half than most people do who live in great circumstances. I also watched how God uses evil for good. As I mentioned, my friend had been trying to plant a church in Odessa and was really struggling to get it off the ground. He didn't have a, a big enough core group. But the Lord now displaces these relatives of his. They have to flee for their lives. They come now to Odessa and they dove into ministry. They were there for every evangelistic outreach. They did the setup. They did the singing. They did so many things. Every single one of them. The father, the mother, the kids, all the way down to the little girl. And it was hugely because of them and their ministry that the church got off the ground. And today that church is flourishing. Many people have got saved and they're sending missionaries even to foreign countries. They remind me of what I read about those early Christian refugees. They lost everything 
but they carried with them the only thing that can be carried in the heart, and that is hope in Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I think of the Jerusalem Christians who proclaimed the gospel in the cities that they fled to, I think of that Ukrainian family arriving with nothing but what they could carry in their arms and what they could carry in their heart. The hope of the gospel which is carried in the heart of the believer is something which cannot be taken away and cannot be destroyed. It cannot be destroyed by the Sanhedrin's rage in the life and times of James. It cannot be destroyed by Russian artillery in the life and times of our refugee friends. And it cannot be destroyed by whatever the future holds in our own life and times. So don't fear it. You have a treasure which is secure in a way which nothing and no one can touch. Don't fear what may come or who it may come by. If you have the hope of the gospel in your heart, you have a treasure which, as Paul says in Colossians, is kept by the power of God and reserved in heaven for you because you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Well, we need to draw our introduction to the book of James to a conclusion. We've seen that the author is James, the brother of the Lord, who was an unbeliever until about the age of 30, saw the resurrected Lord and was gloriously converted, became pastor of the mother church in Jerusalem, and writes the book of James somewhere between 44 and 49 AD, which makes it the earliest book written in the New Testament. This is the first New Testament book. We saw that he's writing to Israelite believers, those who were living abroad and had become Christians because of early missionary efforts, or had been in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and heard Peter's sermon and were converted, or those who had fled from the persecution in Jerusalem as refugees and settled in other countries. And then fourthly, those who had been led to Christ by those refugees. But we also see that he is writing to unbelievers. To, he's writing to the rich oppressors of those refugees, and he's writing to religious unbelievers. And he's helping them to test to see whether they're in the faith. In his book, he's going to contrast fake faith with real faith, fake fruit with real fruit, and fake fellowship with real fellowship. There's going to be a series of tests that he takes his readers through as we go along, and I hope that you will test yourself as we study this book. Regardless of who you are and where you're at in your spiritual journey, this book is for you. You may be one of those committed believers like those refugees from the church in Jerusalem, but you're facing trials. This book is going to be an encouragement to you. It's going to teach you to consider it all joy when you face those trials because God is doing something significant through them. Or you may be a believer who has deviated from orthodoxy or orthopraxy, from right doctrine or from right living, this book is for you because James is going to come hard at you and he's going to teach you to start living out your faith, to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Or you may be an unbeliever, one of those religious fakes that 
James was concerned about. James had a heart for religious fakes because that's what he used to be. If that's you, this book is for you. He's going to help you discern between fake faith and real faith, fake fruit and real fruit, and fake fellowship and real fellowship. So no matter who you are and where you're at in your spiritual journey, this book is for you. God has given it for you. I want to ask you to be in prayer that the Holy Spirit would do a work in your heart through our study of the book of James and in the life of our church collectively. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of the life of James, the grace that was revealed through your salvation of this hard-hearted half-brother. Lord, we thank you then for his testimony of godliness and even giving his life for the cause of the gospel, for his pastoral heart, for those who had been scattered and had lost everything. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of those early Christian refugees who really were early Christian missionaries, scattered by persecution and sent by you to proclaim the word to others. Lord, help us to follow their example of faith and their footsteps of faith. Lord, for any who profess faith but don't possess faith, pray that you'd use our study of the book of James to bring them to saving faith, to living faith, to the new birth which comes by grace. We ask this in Jesus' name.